Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now, now, Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey everyone, thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the high-flying New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Joining us today is Roger Dodge Woodle. Did I say that right, Dodge? That's the one, mate. That is CEO of Event Crowd and Event Group, UK's leading online event course, and of course, famously, the founder and CEO of Born with Sevens, the revolutionary sports weekend that has quickly grown into one of the world's largest sports and music festivals. He's also a fellow podcast host with the Eventful Entrepreneur, ranking in the top 1% globally, and not to mention, of course, a skilled former rugby player. Welcome along, Dodge. Great to have you. Great to be here, mate. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, so tell me, you you were you you grew up over a pub, is that true? I grew up living above a pub in London, yes, as a kid, which was a uh, a very different upbringing to your normal uh your normal upbringing for sure. Yeah, so was that like late nights then, you know, staying up late and Oh yeah, it was uh it was one of the top pubs in London and we lived in the flat above the pub and uh, we, had a, we had a nightclub next door. So my sleep patterns all over the place growing up as a kid. But it taught me uh, it taught me a lot of skills at a very young age, and at a young age I was around uh, lots of adults the whole time, lots of uh, lots of toxicity, lots of fun people, lots of naughty people. Uh, you know, it taught you a lot of skills early on. Yeah, and you know, we're gonna do a quick warm up game, and one of the words in there, well, I would love to get your thoughts. I'm just gonna say a word, and you say the first thing that comes to mind. Loughborough. Loughborough. Go. Cool. For Loughborough, um, university, like a big butlins on steroids, full of sport. <laughs> Bournemouth. Bournemouth, beautiful beaches, south coast. It's where I live, and that's where we host the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. What an amazing thing that it is. Uh, pound a man. Pound a man. That's something that my mum taught me uh, when I was at school. And then I went to, you had yeah, 300 kids at school, and there's always a pound note at school. Back then, as obviously we had pound notes back then, and then I yeah. went to from there went to Sports University Loughborough, and my mum said to me on the drive up there, make sure you earn a pound a man, and there was twelve thousand people on campus, and that's where my events world started, throwing parties. And, uh, my first ever deal was a pound a man, where I took a pound for every person that come into our nightclub, and we had two thousand there every single Wednesday sports night in my final year at university. So I was leaving university. Uh, in my final year, I was coming home with that club and I had another club in London. I was coming home with £3,000 every week, every Wednesday and Tuesday. Wait, how did you get into that? How did you start those events? Well, I started, well, I was, as, as a young 10-year-old, I was selling tickets for the for the nightclub next door in my dad's pub. Um, and I would earn 20 quid every Saturday night. So I'd go to the, uh, the, the manager next door of the nightclub and buy tickets off him for a pound. Um, I would then sell it for two pound, but my tickets would get people queue jump that get them into the nightclub. So, um, I did that at 10 30 every Saturday night. Um, That's everyone nice. in dad's pub, there's a thousand people in dad's pub. I'd sell my, sell my tickets. They would go up and get a queue jump into the nightclub. They were a winner. I was a winner. The club manager was a winner. Everyone was winning. That taught me business from me at early age to make sure you always create a win-win. For everybody. So that's, that's where the arena really started at a young age and, um, was that, Dodge, was that your idea? Where, what's that? Was that your idea to create? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was always, I was earning money at a very young age. You know, we had a nightclub next door, so I'd earn my money there. Every May bank holiday, there'd be two, 3,000 people come down to River Thames. I'd, uh, I'd set up a, uh, a hot dog stand and I would set up next to it an ice cream stand. So if there, it was a boiling hot day, I'd sell all the ice creams. If it wasn't a hot day, I'd sell all the hot dogs. And then I'll take into that stuff that I didn't sell, take it back to the cash and carry and get my money back. So, you know, at a young age, at that sort of 10, 11, 12, on that bank holiday weekend, there's two of them, three of them each year, I was coming out of 600 pound net profit, you know? So yeah. it was in my blood, you know, my mum's an entrepreneur and a promoter. Um, my dad was the, the king of cash and, uh, that was the world we were in, you know, the eighties, um, eighties and nineties. And, um, and we used to have a big WH Smith at the back of the pub. Do you know that you have them in us WH Smith, like the big Woolworths? Yeah. Yeah. Big, Different, yeah. 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 Well, there's toy stores like Toys R Us and yeah, yeah. we used to put their toys, massive toys in these big wheelie bins that they wanted to chuck away. And, um, there was nothing wrong with them apart from a little chip on them, whatever. So I'd go, um, skip diving. My mate would hold my ankles. I'd go into big skips and at the back of the pub, we had all this walk by trade and I'd set up a stand there on the weekends, you know, selling these toys. So yeah, mate, I mean, that, that, that started off the entrepreneur at a very young age and it's just grown and grown from there from the age of 10 to. Now they're in 30 years on. Now, so, you know, were you playing rugby at the same time? Yeah, I played rugby. At, um, went to Loughborough Sports University. Uh, played at uh, Wasps before I went there when I was at school. And then um, played at Leicester Tigers. Um, so rugby was my thing. Um, and obviously being on campus, Loughborough University, it turned pro in 96. And we all got contracts in 1997 and cars and and couple hundred quid a week um, and free stash. And it was amazing because you've been playing rugby all your life for free and all of a sudden someone said it's turned pro and you're going to get a few quid and you're going to get a nice car. And it was, uh, yeah, you felt a million dollars. You really did. But I'm glad I stopped when I stopped and all my mates went on to play England rugby and captain in England and, um, and doing big things. And I stopped at an early age of 23 because I found this thing at, at university that I was throwing uh, parties each week in the local nightclubs. And then when I finished my PE sports science degree, it was like, shit, I don't want to go and get a job. I'm unemployable. I want to go and see if I can scale this business, this student nightclub business around the UK. And I scaled it up to having 12 nightclubs every single week in different parts of the UK, from Manchester to London, to Leicester, to Birmingham, all over 12 parties every week. And, uh, I take all the door money. And the nightclub would take all the bar money and, um, it was a real lucrative and I hit the jackpot at a fairly young age and I did that for 10, 10 years. Um, yeah. So you were effectively bringing that new market or collecting that market and basically handing it to the nightclub because they weren't I able would, to do that on their own. I would, that most nightclubs in the UK are busy Friday, Saturdays, but midweek they're closed. So I saw yeah. an opportunity to go to these nightclubs of 2000 capacity and say, look, you're closed. How about we open? I take the door money and you take the bar money. Win-win. So I put all the entertainment on. I promote it with flyers and posters, uh, tie up all the sports captains and, uh, and all the netball girls and hockey girls and get them there and make them feel special. And I put on entertainment and, uh, fire breathers and, and big acts and DJs and celebrities and sports stars. And we'd pack out all these nightclubs and, uh, you know, we were charging three or four quid to get in 2000 people in there. 
That was one nightclub, and uh, we had 12 every week. That's brilliant. How did you manage the, just as you spread out geographically, how did you manage that and scale up, which is typically such an issue for most businesses, creating the one good product, but then getting it into a place where you have multiple versions of that? Yeah, yeah, interesting question. Um, you got to remember, we're doing this before social media. So right. everything was flyers to hand. Everything was posters, fly posting, posting uh, big posters up where you're not meant to post them, you know? So you had this whole battle with the council and uh, and uh, other people around the different cities. Because for me, it was about how I can get my name out there, the word, you know, the, the brand, popyourcherry.com, we called it. Uh, and uh, perfect for the students. And we used the two cherries from, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the cherries, you know, the Pasha logo in Ibiza? Yeah. We used yeah. those logo. And in 2000, when the dot-com boom came about, we created a website called popyacherry.com. And it was just a perfect name for the students. So they loved it. Um, yeah. And I had a very clever shock, shock value. Yeah, shock value kind of Absolutely. Thing. Absolutely. So we'd have to get flyers to hand. So if there was 12,000 people on campus, I would make sure there was 12,000 flyers under every single door, on every single front of someone's car as they go into other nightclubs and other nights. So you're getting your name out there where today... I can sit laying on a sofa and press a few buttons and get the word out there. So I'm glad I did that for 10 years, but it was proper graft, you know, but going back to your question there, you know, when you're scaling up, I could remember, I could only be, I might have three nightclubs on a Monday, three on a Tuesday, three on a Wednesday, and three on a Thursday. I can't be in all those no. places on one night. So you know, I had to build teams in different cities and it was just me and my mobile. So it was, um, it was building teams. I was putting people on. Uh, cuts of the door. So they had an interest in getting more people in, into the nightclubs. I was looking after the head doorman. So, cause I knew he had the clicker so I can marry up the clicker with the till. To see yeah, if anyone I was about to ask, yeah, I was about to ask the, did you have yeah. a system by which you could see it from two different sides? So it was Absolutely. Well, if I knew that the head doorman was on 50 quid at night to be a head doorman back then, he'd be getting 150 quid or 200 quid from me as a keep your eye on the numbers for me. So <laughs> Again, you're looking after people, creating win-wins. He was super happy. He was getting quadruple what he would normally get. And um, I had family. I and mean, the most important thing is you had family on all the tills, so no one could take any money. And um, yeah. yeah, it was run as a tight, as a tight ship, but it was, a, it was a challenge. Don't get me wrong. Like traveling from London where I lived at the time, going up to Manchester and Birmingham, it might be a four-hour drive and a three-hour drive. You're staying in hotels Monday, Tuesday, right. Wednesday, Thursday trying to collect the money to take it all back down to London after your Thursday, after staying in nightclubs, uh, after staying in hotels for four nights. And um, it was great fun in my 20s. Those are some great nightclubs too. I mean, I, I spent a, a fair bit of time at one stage at the Oceana in Birmingham. Oceana? <laughs> we had a lot of the Oceanas at the time. Yeah, yeah we had a lot of those nightclubs as part of Luminar Leisure at the time. Um but yeah, they were, they were proper monster clubs. They were like two and a half thousand capacities. Massive. Thousand, massive. Yeah. Huge. Rooms huge. everywhere and different things. Exactly. And... exactly. We loved it. What happened to that business? You know, what, what was the change? Why the change from, from that business? It sounds like it was growing and scaling and, um, did the culture change or. Yeah. Culture did change. Um, my attitude changed as well as I was getting older and the kids were, you know, the students were looking younger and I was getting older. You know, that's part of it, one part of it, but that right. didn't stop me stopping. It was just, I'm quite good at identifying what's going to happen next. 
in business. And I, I kind of got this feeling in, in, it was about 2006, 2007, that the smoking ban came in and you weren't allowed to smoke in nightclubs and, you know, and England's cold. So people were having to go outside and smoke in either the rain or the snow or the cold. And it just affected that experience. I noticed, um, I also know in, at that time, the 24 hour license came alive in the UK. No one was using the 24 hour license, but the bars were all of a sudden saying, why are all these students drinking in our bars from 7 PM and leaving us at 10:30 to go to a nightclub? Well, that nightclub would close at two. So all of a sudden these bars were saying, why don't we stay open till two? Take keep, the the students, keep the students in our bars and put a little dance floor in there. So I started, started to see all these things happening around me. And I thought, you know what? I've got to start to look now at the next big step. And the, and the big step for any promoter out there who is in the nightclub world, the next step is going into the festival world, which is a whole new ball game. Yeah, massive. And I mean, in the UK, you guys have traditionally had those festivals, the Glastonbury's of the world, and it's you know very much part of the the culture. Seemingly, how did you focus then on a sports festival? How did you come up with that idea in the first place? Mm. I was I, I moved from London down to down to Bournemouth on the south coast, where we got like seven miles of beautiful beaches, sandy beaches, and I was at a point where I didn't want to be traveling around the country doing. 30,000 miles every year in my car when I saw that the, the nightclubs was a bit affected. And I thought, well, cool. Back then there was probably 15 festivals in the UK. You know, your Glastonbury's, your Reading, your Leeds, a few others, but there was no sport and music festival. And I thought if I could replicate that feeling of when you're at university, you're with your mates, part, playing sport and partying in the nightclub, how can I replicate that and do that in 67 acres of land? So that's when the idea came about to create Bournemouth Sevens and it grew from there. It was, um, we started with rugby and, uh, it was a massive gamble, which we took and then I didn't want it to be a sausage fest. So we made sure we got loads of netball teams there. So, um, and that's where the idea come about really. I was trying to mix the sport in the day with a music festival from during the day, but a music festival will really turn when it, when the night comes along that sort of 7 p.m., 6 p.m. Um, and that's what we've grown. And we've just about come into year 15. Which is incredible. And, and, you know, the entrepreneur piece of that, you know, everybody sees it how it is today and just how wonderful and amazing that event is. But when you were starting this thing, it wasn't like there was, you could see somebody else, how they did it, learn from their failures and successes, replicate it, build a better mousetrap. It literally was starting something brand new that never existed you know, again, you had a concept of, I'm going to give these people a feeling that they used to have. Um, can we do that? And I read somewhere, you, you know, you even had to go to the point of, you know, how are you going to pay for all this? Cause you had to pay for everything in advance. Um, and just that entrepreneur, um, mindset, can you just walk us through, like, how did you know that that vision, like to, to stick, the stick, stick to would be the, I think the way to describe it. Yeah. I didn't know if I was honest with you. Uh, I really didn't know it was a, it was a huge gamble, um, and a gamble that got to a point where I said, we're going to do it. And I, I've got belief that we can nail this, but I had no mentor. I had no one to follow. I had no business model to follow. I had no one to speak to, to say, what do you do when you, when you, when you rent a big field, it was all learning. Um, 
And naivety of business is a powerful thing. And I was extremely naive back then, 15 years ago. Um, and it, yeah, it, the idea came about and um, it was just me. I didn't have any, uh, a full team of staff. Uh, just me and my wife. She left her secure job at JP Morgan um, because this snowball effect was getting bigger and bigger. And there's me thinking I can pack out nightclubs, which is, which is uh, a task in itself. But when you go to a nightclub, security are there, all the drinks are there, the toilets are there, the DJ sets, the DJ uh, console is there. It's insured. Uh, DCTV's there, it's insured. Everything's yeah. all laid on a plate for you. I just pack people in there, take the money and drive off and I'll see you next week. Well, when you put on a festival, you've got to be thinking, police, council, licensing, fire brigade, airport, which is next door to us. Then you've got to be thinking showers, toilets, uh, marquees, CCTV, Wi-Fi, police, security bills. And it, it just was this massive, massive business that I didn't really know anything about. And, um, but I learned quickly and I got people around me who knew more than me and that side of things. Um, and the naivety kicks in when you think, right, okay, this might cost me a hundred grand to put on. And I was thinking that, um, but because I had no track record, I was thinking I was going to pay all the contractors and all the bar staff and all the security and all the police after. And, um, that's not the case, <laughs> but six months prior to the first festival, everyone wanted their money on the first, first festival was in May. Every contractor wanted their money in January. When I finished Christmas, I was writing all these checks out. All of a sudden a hundred grand had gone within like four days. I was like, shit. Now what? And you got to remember there was a, there was a massive global recession back then when the, the whole world banking system yeah. collapsed. So I was in for a hundred grand, run out of money six months prior to the first event, first festival, what am I going to do? You know, and then you have to make a decision. You either walk away from the hundred grand or you go for it. And, um, I went for it and I worked out with people around me that was going to end up costing 300 grand. And so there was no option for me. There was no banks to go to. There was no one to go to because everyone had tightened ship and it was like pff, everyone locked all the doors. The only option for us was to remortgage our family home, one myself and my wife's uh, lovely home. And um, that was a really difficult conversation to have with your missus to say, look. Can you imagine? Uh, yeah. And it was, um, I had full belief that we were going to nail this. And my poor wife was probably crying in bed at night time, maybe five nights a week for God knows how many months leading up to it, thinking, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because if people don't turn up on the door, we're going to lose our home because people wouldn't pay on the internet back then. There was the, people were scared to put their cards over the internet. So we were waiting on the day for people to turn up to hopefully pay for this festival. And the, and the weather to cooperate. And then you've got the weather. There's so many things that can go wrong at a festival. And, um, one of the biggest things that you can't control is the weather. Now, year one, I didn't know how many people were going to turn up. So the security would say to me, how many security men do you want? I don't know. They're like, why don't you know? I said, well, I don't know how many people are going to turn up. And then I'm saying, well, I need all these bar staff. How many bar staff do you I don't know. I don't know how many people are going to turn up. So it's this knock-on effect of not knowing. Um, 
So we just went for it. We sort of guessed, you know, we needed 70 security. We guessed we needed maybe 90 bar staff. And it was just all guessing games. And, uh, and we didn't know how much we were going to take behind the bar. It's all, you know, we take the bar money. This is very new to me as well. I didn't know how many, how many pints people were going to be necking and, and, right. and, and it's the same. It's all the catering units. You, know, you subcontract the catering units out and they say, right, a catering unit. They're going to say, well, how many people are you getting there? So I don't know. Well, how many catering units do you want? I don't know, 10, 15, 20, but they're all paying me a pitch fee. So then they're scared because they don't know how many people are going to turn up. Right. Because they have to make the food in advance. and Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're making the pizzas and burgers and, and, and Thai and what have you. So they would say, Doug, every, yeah, everything you're saying is like, these are the feelings we're going through as we're building the free jacks. And it's like, is it going to be 5,000? How many people are going to show up? I mean, how many security do we need? What are, what are the police? You know? <laughs> how many bartenders? And our first match this year was, you know, freezing, pouring rain. And, you know, three of the bartenders are like, it's too cold. I'm leaving, you know, and that shut down one whole area of point of sale. And yeah, oh, I, I just, I empathize so, so much. Yeah. How did you, how did you then get through it? Like, what were the things that you saw that year one that were like, okay, this is loads. loads. God, if I told you what happened in year one, you wouldn't believe me. Some of the stories I had, a, I had a letter from Warner brothers, a lawyer's letter landed on my door. Cause what I did was I used the Bournemouth sevens. I created a Bournemouth sevens logo. And what I right. did is changed it into a Superman looking like logo. And I put that everywhere. Flyers and posters were up at Twickenham stadium. Flowing everyone, it was just Superman everywhere. I took eight girls up there with a super women's outfits with the boob tubes and da da da. I bought eight lad students from uh, up to Twickenham dressed as Superman, and we're going around all the car parks and where everyone was drinking, giving out flyers and being chased by security. And and then obviously someone picked up on it, um, and I'd, I knew that I was taking a massive gamble of using the Superman logo. But I didn't care at that, at that age. I was like, God, if people see the Superman logo, they're going to link it to my festival. And anyway, I got yeah. a letter prior to the first festival saying, we've seen your Superman logo everywhere. I'm from Warner Brothers and we're going to sue you unless you take everything down. Da, 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 da. It just went from the sense. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially that was it. And I was like, shit, hit. this is serious. So I, I, <laughs> I acted, uh, I pleaded dumb and, and acted the goat. Um, spoke to the lawyer and just said to him, like, everything will, will, will burn all our hundred thousand flyers and our posters and everything online, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember receiving that letter and I thought, I remember coming in the house and seeing this massive sort of stamp on this letter. It was a really heavy letter. There was a massive stamp on the top right saying Warner Brothers, like a gold stamp. I was like, oh no, here we go. Trouble. <laughs> this is trouble. So did you imagine that adding into the pressure and. The pressure. Kind of like you know you've like, made it when you've gotten a cease and desist from from Warner Brothers. All the exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There was another in that in that first event. There was another incident. There's loads of incidents. Again, look, we had a big fun fair that turned up, and they would pay. Uh, I think we paid him to be, and he had one of these big reverse bungees where you've got these two big poles which are like 50 meters in the air. You go in a cage and they spring you up into the sky. Anyway, we're right next door to a an airport where the flight plane's coming in again, yeah. I wasn't thinking of this at all. And, um, as we'd opened the doors on the first arrived, the police were arrived. I've all security their earpiece and whatever. And I said, if you need me, just text me guys. Anyone needs me, just text me because my phone's just going off constantly. If I know it's a text in my pocket or what's that, I'll know it's serious. 
And I had all these, my phone was just ringing in my, uh, rattling in my pocket. I thought, oh no, this is serious. Anyway, the police turned up with the airport traffic control and said, if you don't take that down in half an hour, closing your whole festival. I had to then go to meet the funfair guy who had tattoos all over him, gold chains and, and a couple of teeth. And yeah. uh, I was like, listen, mate, you, you've got to take this uh, big bungee down. He said, I'm not taking it down unless you pay me three grand for my time. I was like, mate, I haven't got three grand to give you. And this went off for about 40 minutes and the police were standing behind me going, listen, if you don't take it down, you're getting closed. Anyway, he finally took it down and he put it on the low load. I thought, yes, he's going to go away. I said, I gave him 300 quid for his petrol money. He come down from Manchester to Bournemouth. Yeah. And he was fuming. Anyway, I was hiding in and out of all the different tents, like running around, hiding behind the things. Like, I can just imagine the pretty hill music in the background. Did you? Yeah. It's just like a yeah. movie. Yeah, mate. It's literally like that. that yeah, there were so many, so many incidents and stories happened. But do you know what? We made it work. We made it happen. It was a beautiful, sunny day, which was a godsend. Because I think I might not be here today if it wasn't sunny that first festival. That makes it. And do you know what we made? And that first festival, it cost 300 grand. And Melvin Ben, who owns Reading Festival and Leeds Festival, he's probably the biggest promoter of festivals worldwide. His words to me were, most music festivals take seven years to break even. Year one, we made a thousand pound profit. That's hey, when I knew. Broken. We're going to make this work. That's when I knew I'm onto something here. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. I get heart palpitations thinking about a bunch of rugby teams coming and staying in a campsite with netball teams. Like, how did you manage that whole experience? <laughs> a bunch of people camping, amazing. partying all day. It was literally amazing because everyone's got the same mentality. You've got that sports mentality where you want to play hard and party hard as well. And everyone's very loving and caring of each other. Sportsmanship. Uh, yeah, huge sportsmanship. And. Again, going back to that university feel, the day that we, when you used to play with your mates, you know, and it's not a university festival, but it's ex-university people, whether you're 18 to 50, 60, playing sport across dodgeball, netball, hockey, and rugby. And we've just added CrossFit as well. So it's grown hugely in the sports uh, over the years. And year one, we got 96 rugby teams, which we were blown away by. You know, fantastic. And going back then, people wouldn't pay online. So I was, I was on the flyers were saying, send a check to my office address, which was actually my house because we're working at the garage. And every day these different checks were coming through, like team entry checks. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Seven one day, nine the next day. I was like, geez, I was expecting 24 teams. We got 96 teams in year one. Then I decided to add netball in year one with about five months to go. We got another, we got 30 netball teams, which brought more women, which just made the atmosphere unbelievable. And then in the evening, we had thousands of people turn up just to party. So that was year one. Did, did you, did you have fields already allocated or like, did you have to make fields? Well, you, you turn up to 67, that's a, we, we hire a, a sports club. So it's yeah, got okay. two Astro pitches, which we which those two Astro pitches we make into 16 netball courts. We've got seven rugby, nine rugby pitches. Um, we've got inflatable dodgeball courts. We've got two hockey pitches. Uh, so it's all there, but what, you're going to a greenfield site. So we've then got to put in now, if I'm talking about in 2022, 
We've got 12 festival arenas, big top dance tents, what holds 4,000 people, 3,000 people. The longest bar in Europe is a hundred meter bar where everyone's just getting on the beers and dancing. Then we've got an 80s tent. We've got a VVIP tent, a VIP tent, a garage tent, a house tent, all these different genres of music everywhere to cater for everyone. Do you have to, do you have to, cause you're out in the, you know, you have to build this whole infrastructure on a short term basis. How do you yeah. manage the music then? Like, you know, if, if I want to listen to this type of music here, does that affect the music over in this field or no. is it the way you, no, it's not you no, it's just this beautiful hum of music. Nothing's crossing over. We, 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 we program it in a very professional way that the music doesn't cross over, but you could walk into one tent and you could be dancing to ABBA and you could walk into another tent and you've got uh, garage music or house music or whatever it may be, you know? So that's great. Have you ever been affected by the weather? Like, how do you manage that? I mean, obviously so much goes into, this is an outdoor event, you know, do you ever have a lightning situation or anything else like that? Yeah. 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 We've been extremely lucky over the last 14 years with weather. Obviously we lost our festival in 2020 due to uh, the pandemic. Um, but there's been one year where it tonked down really, really heavy and that's a, you know, you don't know whether you're weatherproof as a festival until you have really crap weather. And we had an appalling, one year, we had an appalling uh, Saturday because people come Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's the bank holiday weekend. So people party Friday, right. Saturday, Sunday. And we had torrential rain where there was like, flood, you know, deep water where people were camping and it was just madness how we had to deal with it all. And, and it lasted about four hours, but there was so much rain in those four hours, but we dealt with it. And that's what we do. And, and we, we, we solve problems as, as promoters and events people and entrepreneurs. And, and that's what we did. And, you know, at that time I was thinking, oh no, this is a nightmare. People are not going to turn up. People didn't care. People, they didn't care. It's literally, yeah, they didn't care. It was like Glastonbury. They're like, let's get into the bars and get tucked into the beers and let's go and dance and have a laugh and be free and meet new people and dance and laugh. And that's what our festival is about. And that, I think that's why. We've been around so long. There's many festivals come and go in the UK, but there's not many festivals are 14 years old coming into their 15th year. Yeah, it's very unique. So, so there's now four sports, multiple different concerts, totally different, uh, you know, it's, it's evolved, um, but kept its unique characteristics. How, from a management point of view, how are you making that improvement year to year with your team? How do you kind of get everybody to, to keep improving the way you guys have been? Yeah, we're, we're relentless. I'm certainly relentless to be the best. So, so does your staff get that from you where you're, yes. you're on top of them and, or are you just hiring the right people at the beginning? Like, how do you? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you build a team, I've got, I've got seven, I've got eight full-time staff who work on this all year round. We have 800 staff every day working at the festival oh. and my, and police, we have security, 250 security. We have 50 police. We have 250 bar staff. We have 200 referees and umpires. We have 70, 80, 90 caterers. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of people yeah. on the site and, um, and there's a lot of people to manage, but we manage it really well. I've got a, my management director has been with me 11 years. My commercial, my uh, event director has been with me seven years. And my creative director has been with me seven years. And we've got this wonderful team of people who just want to be the best and push boundaries, but I'm constantly going around each year with writing notes in my phone, how I can improve it for the next year while I'm at my festival. 
So yeah, it's, um, we're constantly pushing boundaries to create a better experience for the customer. As soon as they walk in, they get greeted nicely. They feel safe. They get a great experience behind, you know, getting served at all the bars across the site. They've got great music. They've got a lot of England internationals and Welsh internationals and British Lions players. They're mingling with everyone. Big, big headline DJs, snacks, uh, fancy dress, a beautiful campsite, lovely showers, hot showers, lovely posh toilets. So we create a wonderful experience and that's the key because most festivals will put on a massive lineup to sell their tickets. We don't sell our tickets on a lineup. We sell our tickets and sell out 30,000 tickets every year before we even announce a DJ. So when that customer buys the ticket, they're buying it because they love Bournemouth 7s and not relying on who's DJing before they buy a ticket. So we then throw in the, the cherry on the top, which is once we've sold out, the month of the festival will then tell everyone the lineup and everyone just goes, oh, that's amazing. Thank you. So are you finding a lot of repeat customers? Like your demographic seems, you know, based on the marketing, young sports people, but are you seeing, you know, families there? Are you seeing, you know, Gen Xers and boomers there? Like what's the, do you, do yeah. you see a repeat once you sell them once on it, you, you see them for 15 years? Yeah. What's the, you don't see it. You don't see them for 15 years. You see them until they, you know, the, the age is 18 to 30 to our festival okay. or the majority. Um, they probably go for like five, six, seven years on the bounce. And then they'll either get married or have kids. The missus won't allow them out or they've got a mortgage to pay or the husbands yeah. won't allow the girls out or whatever that kind of comes into play. And then yeah. we have the older crowd because we have a VVIP Ted looking over the main pitch, which is beautiful, uh, private bar, DJs, celebrities, sponsors, uh, people who want bet an even better experience and nicer toilets and, uh, and a place worth calm. Even though it's a great party and there's karma because that, because when you walk out into the festival, it's madness. You can come back and go, oh, and breathe, you know? So, um, yeah. that would be your four 30 to 50 to 60 year olds all in there drinking champagne okay. vodka bottles, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever thought about, I mean, the U S sports, very, very linear scholastic base. You know, you play for high school, you play for university, then you go pro or you don't play at all. Have you thought about doing something like this in the U.S.? It's because it's very unique from kind of the way sports work here. Um, have you looked into that? Yeah, I have. It's a, it's a really good question. No one's ever asked me this before, but yeah, I have. Um, I set up a brand called MiamiSportsFest.com uh, yeah. um, six or seven years ago, and I was literally like, let's go to Miami for a couple of years. Let's go and get the campus. The campus, 100,000 students. Let's go yeah. and hire the campus. Let's take this English business model to the US, it's a big drinky, sporty business model that I think would smash the US if it's done right. Um, and I was fully gonna go for it. Um, even the wife was in, say, let's go and do it for a couple of years. But at the same time, we had a little boy and it was like, oh, we, do we wanna take him to the US now when he was growing up? And I made the right decision um, by saying no in the end. Um, but I know I've got a business model that no one knows about across the, across the world, apart from me yeah. and, my wife and my managing director and my other directors. And it's a business model model that if done correctly with the right investment, if someone was to pay me to come and do it. I've actually got a meeting next week with someone wants my business model and, and 
pay a large sum to take to Australia down on the Gold Coast. Um, and I'm having a chat with world rugby as well. So there's lots of, lots of conversations going on, but I think, what was your question again? It was, would I go to Yeah, just, you know, just about America, you know, I mean, I think that's, it's, um, it's so unique of a concept and just so many of our sports teams, um, you know, it's performance based and then it's not really, um, yeah. And we're, but getting that and figuring out how to tie in the college to really post-college, you know, lifestyle of what yeah. you've done so successfully with, with Bournemouth, where people are getting that feeling again. That's right. Um, if I went to the DLS, it wouldn't be just rugby. I would go down the, the baseball, the shortened version of baseball, shortened version of rugby, maybe American football, shortened version flag of football. Get, yeah. Yeah. Flag football across. Six, yeah, yeah. Across. I'd get five or six sports tie up all the sports captains at the university get them on board, get them to, to buy into the weekend, get them to promote on socials as well. And, and then promote the acts to create that, that second wind of people coming in at sort of four or five o'clock in the afternoon to come and party. And, uh, I think it would absolutely smash the U S this business model that I've got here, but, um, I haven't put myself out there to, to take it forward and the biggest things in business that I've learned over the years and the best things anyone can say in business is to say no. Yeah. A hundred percent. Is there something lately that you've had to do that with? Yeah. I've got 19 businesses that I've said no to <laughs> my own businesses that I've created an idea. Yeah. Built, bought the website, the com, built it, the brand, built the brand, took myself on a massive journey, whether it's London Sevens or Cardiff Music Festival, uh, Sport and Music yes. Festival, or different businesses. And then if it doesn't tick, tick eight of the 10 boxes, I will then say no. And my managing director, when we 11 years, reminded me the other day that he's got 19 businesses that we've been on hold yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'll never see the light of day. Exactly. Too, unfortunately. So tell us a, a quick about um, Event Crowd and, you know, it's an online eventing um, course. Yeah. Yeah. And in the lockdown, obviously lost, lost the festival. We had to cancel the 2020 festival. And then I was like, right, what am I going to do? Why don't we set up a podcast to tell my story? I've kept myself uh, uh, private all my life. Anyway, um, I told my story on a podcast and it went viral. People loved it. And it was just me putting my cards on the table, being hundred percent straight and saying, this is, this is my journey and people liked it. So we then launched the eventful entrepreneur podcast, which I'm a host of We're yeah. now up 0.5% of podcasts globally. Congrats. Uh, that's great. Thank you, buddy. Uh, um, and I interview sporting legends, um, ex gangsters, ex entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs with wonderful business minds, SAS. Um, and it's a lot, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So yeah, so did that in lockdown and then come up with a new idea called the event crowd, which is an online events course that you can do in three months. And we've just been globally recognized with a chartered Institute of marketing, uh, diploma. Um, and I brought in 40 of the world's leading industry experts that worked at Glastonbury and the Olympics and all the major events, whether it's Wimbledon tennis or London fashion week, and we've filmed them. And they've done guest talks and we've put a course together. Um, and you can do this course at a fraction of the time and at a fraction of the price compared to doing a university events management degree. Um, and I was never a good learner at school. I found it hard to learn. 
but I'm a visual learner and I'm a doer. So I created this course of people like myself who want to learn quickly and get a quick ticket, fast track themselves into the events industry. I love it. And maybe we can get some of our staff to, to take that. That is, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Our staff is awesome and they're, they're young, hungry, but a lot of them are learning the business on the fly, you know, and, um, yeah. Well, what I've done is I've learned the business on the fly, but I've put all my knowledge, everything that I know and all my friends knowledge who are the best in the industry worldwide. I've brought them all together to give people like you or your team, the knowledge of, oh, that's how you deal with an event management plan. Well, that's how you do PR and media. Was that's how you do marketing? And that's how you put on an event. These are the things you got to think of. And I've wrapped it all into one to go. You know, when I'm past, my legacy will be this course. To go, guys, this guy Dodge set this course up in 2022 or 21, whenever it was, and this is here for life. So um, there's a massive myth out there that you got to do events management degree to get into the events industry, and it's a load of rubbish. You don't have to whatsoever. You know, I, I asked all my friends who are at festivals and events, do you look for an events management degree on someone's CV? Everyone was like, no way, I don't care. It's about the person, about what they can bring to the table and their experience and their hunger to learn. And someone who's done our course will go into a, go into a position within a company will probably know more than 80% of the people in that company. That's great. Yeah, it's like kind of when we get applications and people have been in sports management, but never actually done anything entrepreneurial or sold anything or created yeah. something or even been a camp counselor. It's kind of like, okay, well, maybe that's not the right fit for what we're trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole lockdown thing for me has been a, a real, something I look back with, with really fond memories because it's allowed me to create a podcast and create this online events course. And on the back of that, my podcast, I was in the, I've done 80 episodes. So it's one a week. And on the back of this podcast, I was in episode eight. And I got a phone call on my mobile on a Sunday night. It said, is that Dodge? I was like, yeah. He says, I'm the, um, the event product, head of event production at the, uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here TV show. And I have a chat. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure, mate. Come down to Bournemouth. He's in London. He come down to Bournemouth and said, we love your style of your podcast. Would you like to be the host of this new podcast? I was like, yeah, what is it? He went, it's the Harry Redknapp show. I don't know if you know who Harry Redknapp is in, in, over in the US. He's a soccer he's, player, right? He's, a, he's, a, he's an absolute legend. Hmm. Um, a legend, legend. And uh, anyway, I agreed to go to co-host his podcast with him. And our first interview was with Piers Morgan. Oh, that's our awesome. second. Yeah, and our second interview is with uh, Rod Stewart. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then the third one was with Eddie Hearn, you know, the boxing promoter, and yeah. Rick Lampard, and the list just went on and on. It was yeah, a, an amazing, surreal moment in time for me to be thinking, "Shit, I've, I don't even know what I'm doing on podcast, let alone be a co-host for this <laughs> massive show." Every <laughs> red now. Yeah, it's so good. So yeah. rapid fire. Who has been your most memorable podcast guest? On my personal podcast would be yeah. um, Harry Redknapp and Barry Hearn and God, there's loads, there's loads, the SAS guys and the ex-gangsters and it's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. And uh, favorite uh, story at the tournament? Do you have a favorite one, a favorite moment? Favorite look moment. back on? The favorite moment of the festival for me would be year one, waiting at the front gates after taking two weeks to build the whole festival site, 
waiting there, not knowing if anyone's going to turn up or not. And then just seeing these massive queues of people excited to come in all in summer gear with their trainers on and skirts and, and jeans and shorts and, and this vibe of smelling the grass and knowing that, oh my God, all this yeah. pressure and hard work hopefully could be paid off. And, uh, that's something that's that all the best. Line. Yeah. That's one of the best feelings on match day for us. You know, we kind of yeah. have these mini festivals and yeah. you know, it's, you see people lining up at the gate and the, you can see the smoke rising from the tailgates in the parking Absolutely. lot. And, uh, you can smell the barbecue and yeah. so yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, advice for young entrepreneurs out there. Believe in yourself. Stop procrastinating. Stop thinking about doing shit and just do it. Don't overthink do it. it. Just get up and do it. If you sit there overthinking it, you won't do anything and you'll be in your, you'll be laying in your bed when you're 70, looking back going, why didn't I do that? We've got one life. So make the most of it, get up and do something which is going to affect the world and bring us, put a smile on people's faces. And, and the events industry is the best industry in the world. I've been doing it for many decades and I can't speak highly enough of it for anyone to get into this industry. It's the business of joy. I mean, you get to give people live moments that you can't replicate. It's absolutely. Yeah. I've been putting smiles on people's faces for 25 plus years and sold over a million tickets to my events. And there's a lot, a lot of happy people out there with great memories. And I feel proud to have been able to put that together for them. It's brilliant. Then my last question, bringing it kind of full circle. If you're in my shoes today, running the free jacks and part of major league rugby here and. Um, you know, as we build out our event space, what would you be focusing on? People, people, people. Inside. it's all about relationships. It's all about, um, making sure you're working with partners, make sure you're being reciprocal with other people, work with brands, let them, let the, the, let the public see that you're working with these brands and what can you do for them? You don't have to pass money around you know, brand yeah. association is a powerful thing, but yeah. It's reputation, people, it's, it's all about people, our world. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we're, we're pretty proud of some of our um, partners like Delta Airlines and a few others who have been fantastic for us. Absolutely. Listen, you get, get big partners. We've got, we've got big international partners who work with us, who pay us lots of money, but you, you don't get that from year one. You've got to build that relationship up. And I guess going back to your point there is whenever you want, you identify a brand that can associate with your brand, make sure you go straight to the CEO, no gatekeepers anywhere. Make sure it goes straight to the owner and have that, take him out for a steak. My one liner is I'd like to take you out for a steak and a glass of red wine. That works every time. Every time. If you said that to me, I'd be like, let's go right now. That's awesome. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the great. That's, exactly. awesome. so that's my point. My point yeah. is someone will say yes to a steak and a, and a red wine an hour of their time. And if they love sport and they like you, you can cut, you can cut a big deal with them. You might do a three-year deal or a five-year deal with a big major sponsor. So good. Now, Bournemouth Sevens is June 2nd through the 4th this year? It is this year. It's the Queen's Jubilee. So it's the second. Are, are, are tickets still available? Yes. For folks tickets, out there? Yep. Tickets are still available as we speak today, which is, I don't know what date we are, April? April. Yeah, April 11th. Yeah. Yeah. So that sells out fast. So folks go to BournemouthSevens.com. Yep. Uh, to get your tickets Dodge, how do they, how do people follow you over social media? Get me on Instagram. Um, I reply to everyone. I'll try to get back to everyone. Uh, it's Dodge Woodall. Um, and you can get me on LinkedIn as well. Brilliant. Uh, 
Thanks, everybody, for listening to this latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Big shout out to Dodge. It's a fantastic episode, and best of luck with Bournemouth 7. So good to uh, have you on. Folks out there, stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports business and, of course, rugby. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest updates. Check out Dodge uh, Whittle on Instagram and LinkedIn, and go to the Bournemouth 7. It's one of the great sporting events festivals of the world, if not the greatest. Awesome, Dodge. Thank you so much. You're a gentleman. Good man. Cheers. Take care.